Let's turn in God's Word, first of all, this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And then we'll turn to Psalm 56, which is the psalm of David, which gives expression to the feelings of his heart, the emotions of his soul at the time of the history recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So first we'll read the history and then the psalm that accompanies that historical event. 1 Samuel 21, then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart, and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them, and feigned himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. And said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad. 
Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen, that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now let's turn to the Psalms, Psalm 56. Psalm 56, to the title to the chief musician upon Jonath, Elam, Rikokim, Mitchtam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O Thou Most High. A time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. In God I will praise His Word, in God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together, they hide themselves, they mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know. For God is for me. And God will I praise His word. And the Lord will I praise His word. And God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto Thee. For Thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not Thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God? in the light of the living. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy scriptures. It's on the basis of these passages of scripture and many others as well that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, found on page 6 in the back of the Psalter. Question 20 of Lord's Day 7. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into Him and receive all His benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth, all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence, which the Holy Ghost works by the Gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation, are freely given by God, merely of grace, 
only for the sake of Christ's merits. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All all things promised us in the Gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. What are these articles? The answer to that is the Apostles' Creed, which we will confess tonight, God willing. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism has thus far set before us the sobering reality of your inability to deliver yourself. Because you and I have rebelled against God, because God, although God created us good, yet we through Adam rebelled against God, and therefore now we stand exposed to the justice and wrath of God. Having shown unto us through the first few Lord's Days man's inability to be delivered from his sin and from the curse due unto him for those sins, the Catechism then set before us briefly the only one who is capable of delivering you and me from our sins, our mediator and our deliverer, Jesus Christ. But now the Catechism, having briefly set before us Jesus Christ, who is very man and perfectly righteous on the one hand, and on the other hand, very God, and has all of the power of God himself, the question that we now face is, How can you and I know this Deliverer? And when we speak here of knowing this Deliverer, we're not simply interested in knowing facts about this Deliverer. We're not simply interested in being able to give truths, even dogmatic truths about this Deliverer. We're not simply interested in being able to defend from the Word of God and from the confessions the fact that He had two natures that subsisted in one person, the only begotten Son of God. When we ask about knowing Him and how we can know Him. We're interested in having a personal saving knowledge of Him. How can you know that this Deliverer has redeemed you from your sins. And to that end, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us about faith. It is only by the confidence of faith that God's children can know their deliverance in Christ. We consider then Lord's Day 7 this morning under the theme, the confidence of faith. 
First, confident of what? Second, confident how? Third, confident why? Before we can understand what it is that faith gives us confidence about, we must know something about generally the truth of faith. What is faith? The catechism students are taught that faith is a bond that unites two together. The welder takes two pieces of metal. He leaves a welding bead between those two pieces. And in welding them, he fuses those two pieces of metal together so that two become one. And yet that figure really falls short of illustrating to us what the idea of faith is because metal is lifeless. We are not taking here two lifeless objects and fusing them together as one. But faith, that bond is a union between one who is living. And so the figure that the Scriptures give to us and as well the figure that's given to us in the first question and answer of this Lord's Day is that of being engrafted into Christ. Are all men as they perished in Adam saved by Christ? No, only those who are engrafted into Him. And so the idea here is that there is the living vine. And that, that vine has life. That vine has roots planted in the ground and, and is, is receiving life and nourishment from those roots in the ground. But then on the other hand, there is this branch. And the branch is of itself lifeless. The branch is severed from the rest of the body. The branch is laying there on the ground and that branch is of itself dead. And so the husbandman then takes that branch, picks up that of itself dead branch, and grafts that branch into the living vine so that there is a union between the vine and the branch. But it's not just that the branch and the vine are united together and by virtue of grafting become one, but further, the branch then receives its life from, draws energy from that vine. So that the branch then brings forth fruit, even abundant fruit, as it receives life from the vine. Well, so it is, beloved, for you and for me in Jesus Christ. We are the branch and Jesus Christ is the living vine. The husbandman is the Father. And the Father by His Spirit takes off us of ourselves dead and unable to produce fruit. And the Father grafts us into His Son, Jesus Christ, so that from Jesus Christ we receive spiritual life. That's faith at its essence. But the emphasis here of the Heidelberg Catechism is especially on what we call the activity of faith. 
That comes out in question 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence. That's faith. Faith is an assured confidence in God. Note well what the Catechism does not say here. The Catechism does not say that faith creates the possibility of assurance. The Catechism does not say that faith can lead to assurance. The Catechism does not say that faith creates that possibility in in your life that you can be assured, but now you have to go out and do something. And it's only when there is faith in conjunction with your works that then you are assured. No, faith is an assured confidence. Faith does not depend upon or rely on man's works as crutches to hold man up so that man might receive confidence before God. But faith itself is confidence. Hebrews 11, verse 1, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 Faith is confidence about where we are walking. For we walk by faith, not by sight. By the confidence of faith, the heroes of of Hebrews chapter 11 were able to perform great and heroic deeds. With the confidence of faith, they stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire escaped the edge of the sword. And so faith at its essence then is a union with Jesus Christ, but faith then as an activity is an assured confidence of what? What is it that faith gives unto us confidence regarding? And we must be very careful here, beloved, in seeking to answer this question. That you and that I are given faith does not mean that we may have confidence about every single thing upon this earth. That we are given the confidence of faith does not mean that miraculously there is given unto us the superhuman abilities. That we are given the confidence of faith does not mean that we have the right to rule over others and to tell others how they are to behave and to insist, well, because God has given me faith, therefore I can tell you how you are to behave. The confidence of faith does not mean that we have the right to go to the civil magistrate and tell the civil magistrate, you should rule over the nation this way, and I have faith, so therefore I have the right to tell you how you are going to govern this nation. What does faith give us 
confidence in. Faith gives to you and to me, beloved, this confidence that I am a child of God. That is the confidence of faith. Recall, faith at its essence is a bond between Christ and His people. If that's what faith at its essence is, then it logically follows that the activity of faith, of being confident, would assure me that that reality is true. The confidence of faith is knowing that I am in a good and a healthy relationship with my God who created me. The confidence of faith is this. It's knowing that I can draw near unto God. That He will not hurt me. That He will not destroy me. But that He will bless me through Jesus Christ, His Son. Faith is required for us to be able to draw near unto God and have that confidence that He will not destroy us. This has been illustrated before with using a picture of how a wild animal, a bird, for example, takes food from human beings. We had it this past summer, our family went hiking on Mount Baker. We paused on the hike to eat some lunch. And as we were eating some lunch, there were some birds that started flying around, taking an interest in especially the food that we were eating. It was clear that they wanted some food. And so we took the food and held it up to the birds to see if they would come. But at first they wouldn't take the food off of our hands. First we had to throw a small piece of food out and the birds would fly in and pick that food up and then go away because the birds were afraid. The birds were skittish, worried that perhaps it would be a trap. That if they would fly in right away immediately to take the food off of our hands, that perhaps the hand would close around them and take them prison and prison and even hurt them. And so it was not until incrementally the bird would get more and more confident that finally at last the bird would dare to fly even up to our hands and take food off of our hands. It's a picture, beloved, of how we are as we stand in relation to God. God has an infinite storehouse of blessings reserved for His people in Jesus Christ. But by nature, we are afraid, even skittish, about coming into the presence of God and receiving those blessings. By nature, we do not consider God to be a friend or an ally, 
But by nature, we would consider God to be a foe, an enemy of us. And even as as the bird is worried that that hand might close around him, entrap it, and even harm it, so it is that we are worried by nature that if we get too close to God and come to receive that bread of life from Him, that perhaps God will take us prisoner and harm and even kill us. The only way that we can come to God with the confidence that He will receive us as His children with open arms is by the confidence of faith. Were it not for faith, we would be like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who hid from God when He came to them. We would run away from His thrice holy presence. But faith is the strength and the courage by which we draw near unto God. It was faith that gave unto David the courage and the conviction to go unto the priest and to ask the priest for that bread, that show bread, that would sustain him and his soldiers. And it is faith Faith, which is the strength by which we go unto God, knowing that God will not slam the door shut on our faces, but that through Jesus Christ the door has been opened unto us that we can come unto Him. The reason that we by nature are afraid of God, the reason that we are concerned that becoming too close to God might mean that God will capture us and even hurt us is, you understand, because of your sins. Sin is what creates this obstacle between the Creator and the creature. And it's because of sins that we would not dare to come into the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy God. And so the only way that we can come into His presence is by having the confidence that those sins have been removed from us. And that's precisely what the catechism teaches us. Question 21, the second half. Faith is an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the Gospel in my heart that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. And notice here the language of the catechism. It says that not only to others, but to me also is given the remission of my sins through Jesus Christ. We might think that the catechism would argue the other way. That it would take the argument from one individual to a larger group of individuals. That not only unto me, but also unto others, unto the whole church, is given the remission of sins. 
But the catechism doesn't progress that way. The catechism progresses from the general truth of the remission of sins to the particular application of that truth. You see, it's one thing to be able to make the generic statement that yes, God loves His people, and yes, God saves His people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But it's quite another matter, is it not, to have the absolute conviction and certainty that not only to others, but to me also, God gives the remission of sins. The devil works so very hard in our hearts and souls, leading us to doubt and to question, am I really a child of God? How can God love me in light of all of my sins and all of my offenses? Yes, of course God can love the neighbor because it seems as if the neighbor isn't as wicked as me. But I know my sins and the curse which is due unto me for those sins. How is it possible that God could love me? And so the catechism with wisdom progresses from the general to the particular. That not only to others, but to me also. The forgiveness of sins is given for Jesus' sake. That's faith. It's knowing that I can come to the presence of the Father and He won't hurt me, but He'll love me. But how then do we enjoy this confidence of faith? It's important that we face this question because the reality is, beloved, that there are varying degrees of confidence of faith. Now when we speak here of varying degrees of the confidence of our faith, let us make sure that we understand well what we are speaking of. We're not speaking here of that objective reality that bond that unites us unto Jesus Christ. We are not saying that that bond that we have with Jesus Christ can fluctuate. That sometimes we're in that bond of Jesus Christ, but then other times we fall from that bond out of Jesus Christ and then must again be placed back into that bond. Oh, the Scriptures teach what we confess to be the preservation of the saints. That once we have been engrafted into Jesus Christ, that bond is an unbreakable bond. There is nothing that can destroy, deter, terminate that bond that we have with Jesus Christ. But rather, what we are speaking of here is the subjective aspect of our faith. The objective reality of that bond remains the same, but it is our subjective living out of that faith. It is our daily 
consciousness of our dependence upon Jehovah God. It is our conviction that we have within our heart that we can draw near unto God and that God for Jesus Christ will bless us. It is that subjective confidence that can and does fluctuate. It changes in either one of two, goes in one of two directions. Either the confidence of our faith is increasing so that we are more and more confident of the remission of our sins in Jesus Christ, or the confidence of our faith is diminishing. so that we start to struggle and wonder internally, am I really God's child? Is it even worth it? Coming to church Sunday after Sunday and living as the child of God. Always, we are going in one or the other direction. If a sick individual is put in the hospital and this sick individual has a monitor recording his heart rate, if that heart rate monitor goes straight, straight line, then it means his heart is no longer beating and the individual is either dead or about dead. If our faith goes straight line, then our faith is either dead or about dead. Faith is either growing or faith is diminishing. The psalmist David gives us an example of this. One moment, David had the confidence to go to the priest and to ask the priest for the showbread. The very next moment, David became afraid and fled out of the land of Israel and went to the land of the Philistines. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Achish would be the king of the Philistines. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart, and was sore afraid of Achish the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them, and feigned himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled rode on, scribbled on the doors of the gate 
and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. There in a very short moment of time, David changed from walking in faithfulness unto Jehovah God to walking in unbelief before Jehovah God. And so, beloved, we do well to know about that with regard to our own lives. It wasn't just David who had moments of great faith and then other times had moments of weakness. But we are the same. And as we study our lives and how God works in our lives, we see from our own observation as well as from the Word of God that there are certain things that would strengthen our faith so that more and more we lean on God and draw from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there are other things in our lives that would discourage us from walking by faith and not by sight. And so we examine, first of all, what is it that would discourage us from walking by faith? What would take away from our faith? And there are so many things that could be listed here. Anything that is ungodly. Anything that is evil. Anything that is not pure in the eyes of the Lord will take away from our faith. We do not have the time here to be able to list out all of the things that would take away from our faith, but we can focus on one thing that would take away from our faith. And that's this, beloved. Having your eyes fixed on men. Having your eyes fixed upon the other men and women of this earth is a tool that the devil uses to discourage us from trusting in God. Psalm 56 Verse 1, the psalmist says, Be merciful unto me, O God. Why? For man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O Thou most high. As David looked out and saw what mankind would do unto him, it was at that moment that David started to become afraid. And David felt that he had to flee out of the land of Israel and go to Gath. And there in Gath, pretend that he was a mad man who had lost his sanity instead of trusting that God would care for David at that moment in time. And as David focused on other men, David saw that as it were, he, he lacked the advantage. The enemies had an advantage over him. Two different things gave the enemy the advantage over him. First of all, it was many against one. He says in verse 2, For they be many 
that fight against me, O thou Most High. And the second disadvantage that David had in fighting against the enemies was the persistence, the ruthless persistence of the enemy in striving and fighting against him. Twice over, David mentions the fact that daily they come against him. Verse 1, He fighting daily oppresseth me. Verse 2, Mine enemies would daily swallow me up. And is it not the case, beloved, that as we look out at what it is that would drain us of our faith, what it is that discourages us, What is it that prevents us from worshiping God with a true and lively faith? Is it not the daily multiple attacks of the world through sinful men? Consider a child who goes to school. This child believes in God, is confident in God, and lives out his faith in God but one day he gets mocked for living faithfully before God. Now if that child is only mocked once for his faith in God, we would hope that the child would have the conviction of faith to be able to press on and still live as a child of God. But what happens if that child is mocked Again and again, and the next day and the next week, the daily oppression against that child eventually will take away any ambition that that child had to live out his faith. And so it is for you and for me as adults. Rare is the time where one event in our lives is enough to draw us away from Jesus Christ, to have us no longer walk by faith, but instead trust our earthly senses more than our spiritual But is it not the daily, repeated difficulties on this earth that oftentimes come from men and women around us that drain us, sap us of our spiritual strength? It's conflict in the marriage where daily, Husbands and wives are arguing with each other that sucks the spiritual life out of us. It's conflict in the workplace. When there's this fellow employee who is so difficult to get along with that drains us of our strength. It's conflict in the home when parents are rearing up Children, and there's the child who day after day after day persists in walking 
in obstinate rebellion against mom and dad that drains the spiritual joy and energy out of us. Having our eyes fixated on men is one of the most powerful tools that the devil uses to draw us away from confidence in God. So having seen one thing that can lead us to go down, to have our faith diminished, what that might strengthen and increase our faith. We know generally it is our duty to trust in God, to believe in Him. The psalmist testified of this in Psalm 56, verse 11. Here, he says, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. So there the psalmist was brought to a point where he had great conviction of God's care in love for him, as well as in the power of God, that the sovereign God would protect him from his enemies, and that the sovereign God would execute vengeance upon the evildoer. And so we know that's what we are called to do, is to have our trust in God. But one might ask, how do I put my trust in God? The psalmist states it here as a matter of fact. He says, in God... Have I put my trust? And yes, I would put my trust in God, and I want to put my trust in God, but I feel as if I cannot put my trust in God. How do we handle these times of uncertainty and doubt? And I think one of the first things that we need to do, beloved, is recognize that this is not the first time that the people of God have wrestled with times of great struggling and even personal doubt. But our forefathers, our spiritual reformed forefathers, hundreds of years ago, as they wrote the canons of Dort, spoke these struggles that we have. In the back of the Psalter, on page 59, we read the Canons of Dort, Head 1, Article 16, which speaks to this very subject of what does one do when they do not experience so keenly the blessings of God. Page 59, Article 16, Head 1. Those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ and a short confidence of soul, peace of conscience, and earnest endeavor after filial obedience and glorying in God through Christ efficaciously wrought in them, and do nevertheless persist in the use of the means which God hath appointed for working these graces in us, 
ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means and with ardent desires devoutly and humbly to wait for a season of richer grace. Two things that we call attention to here of what our Reformed Fathers expressed. The first thing is this, beloved. We must not conclude simply because we are doubting, simply because we struggle with a lack of assurance of our faith, that therefore because I am having these dark thoughts rise up within my mind, it must mean then that I am a reprobate. That I am someone that God has simply passed over as He executed His eternal decree of election. And that therefore because I am a reprobate child, there is no sense even in trying to live as a child of God. Buchanan's warns here, we must not rank ourselves among those that are reprobate. The second thing that Buchanan's calls us unto is persistence. We must diligently persist in the means of grace and devoutly and humbly wait for a season of of richer grace. And you know what the means are. The means of prayer. The means of the study of God's Word. The means of personal Bible study as well as the Bible studies of the church. You know the chief means of grace, the preaching, as well the sacraments that God has given unto the church. The encouragement is persist in the use of the means of grace. The change might not be sudden. The change might not be dramatic. But for God's children, there will be change. So that as one persists in the use of the means of grace, they grow more and more in their confidence that God has given unto them the remission of their sins. We can be confident because God's Word is true. Faith, you understand, is always related unto and even rooted in truth. If it wasn't for truth, there would be no confidence in approaching Jehovah God. Question 21, true faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word. But it's exactly because God's Word is truth 
that then we are able to draw nigh unto God's throne of grace and not be worried that God will destroy us as we come to that holy throne. Always faith is rooted in truth and draws its strength out of the truths of God's world. Some in the world who mock faith say that you Christians who walk by faith, you're living in a fantasy world. You're detached from that which is real. Your faith is some sort of science fiction whereby you have nothing to do with truth. We say no. Truth is, faith is not science fiction. But faith is rooted in the truths of God's Word. True. What does it mean that God's Word is true? Does it not mean that God's Word is dependable? That's what truth is. It means you can depend upon this Word. You can always depend upon this Word. And how delightful it is that you and I can depend upon this Word. We don't like it when someone's Word isn't truth. We don't like it when someone cannot be dependable. It provides a great grief of heart to the employer when his employee is not dependable. It creates so much difficulty, so many difficulties and conflict in marriage when the husband's word or the wife's word is not dependable. When somebody says that they will do this or that, but then they don't do this or that. And then it's not only disappointing, but it's hurtful when somebody's word is not truth. How delightful that God's word is and always will remain truth. We do not have to approach His word with any skepticism, with any fear of whether what we read here is accurate or not. We may know that God's worth, God's word, is truth because of His Son. God's word is truth even when it cost Him. That's why so many words of people of the world cannot be depended upon. It's because people don't want to stand by their words when it hurts. They'll make grand declarations of I'll do this or I'll do that. But then if it hurts for them to do this or do that, well, then they start backpedaling. God's Word was I will redeem My people. God's Word was, I will send the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will bruise, crush, the head of the seed of the serpent. 
God's word to Abraham was, I will make a great nation out of you, and I will bless you in your generations. His word was, there is a promised land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. And this land will be given you as an inheritance. What did it cost God to stand by His Word? The incarnation, the lifelong suffering, the crucifixion, the death, and the descent into hell of His only begotten Son. It is because God's Word is truth that we can have absolute confidence and trust in Him. Amen. Our Father and our God in heaven, without faith, It is impossible to please Thee. We thank Thee that Thou through Christ dost give unto us the gift of faith and that by that bond we are and forever shall remain Thy children. He was made of a woman under the law Through Him we are adopted to be Thy sons and daughters. And by the operations of His Spirit in our hearts, we cry unto Thee, Abba, Father. That Thou receive our worship and send us home with Thy blessing. For Jesus' sake, Amen.